Let's uh, take our Bibles this morning and open them to the book of Genesis. Chapter 27, verse 1, which means we finished chapter 26. Can you believe it? The, <laughs> the, uh, the title of our message this morning is The Anatomy of Deception. Anatomy of Deception. Why are there so many deceived people? We have a explanation of it in the chapter we're going to begin looking at um, today. And as you're turning there, let me just reiterate um, one of the announcements that was made earlier. We are just about one month away from our next uh, Sugarland Bible Church Prophecy Conference, which is going to be Saturday, February the 25th. So we can only hold so many. And we were looking at the people that were signing up on the SLBC website, and the overwhelming majority are non-Sugarland Bible Church members or attendees. Um, we want you to know that you can come to the conference too. <laughs> it's just a matter of signing up. And uh, Bruce um, Munsterman has invited me to do a few um, infomercials for it over KHCB, which we're going to record, I think, Tuesday. So it's probably going to fill up pretty quick, we think. And so um, all of that to say today is the day of salvation. Giving you guys some inside information to sign up for it. Pronto, if you want to go, uh, come, and we'd love for everyone to come. And then the following Sunday, which is the 26th, is not part of the conference. It's just normal church. So no, obviously no sign-up is necessary for that, although we are going to have the conference speakers speak in the first session and the second session. So the only thing you really need to sign up for is Saturday, February the 25th, um, if you're thinking about coming. Um, there is a moderate fee, I guess you could put it that way, for Saturday, because we want to feed you lunch. Amen? You guys look like you have big appetites. But other than that, it's just a matter of signing up, getting your ticket, and we invite you to come. We um, are at a section in the book of Genesis where the focus now is on Jacob. Isaac is mentioned, but he's a sort of a sub-character. It's how the promises of God continued into the life of the patriarch Jacob, chapters 27 through 36. And that's a section of scripture most Christians don't know well. But take heart, because Joseph is coming up. and That's a section of the scripture, for whatever reason, Christians seem to know better, chapters 37 through 50. So believe it or not, we're actually on the downward slide, gravity-wise, <laughs> of the book of Genesis. 
And so as we move into chapter 27, here's kind of a brief outline that we're going to use as we start to go through this chapter. We see Isaac's intent, verses 1 through 5. We see a conspiracy. Oh boy, pastor, I don't believe in conspiracy theories. Well, there's a conspiracy right there in verses 5 through 17 between a, a, a mama and her boy. And then there's a deception and blessing, verses 18 through 29. Isaac blesses Esau, 30 through 40. And then there's a plan to flee, to go to Haran up north, verses 41 through 46. Don't panic. We're not going to cover all that today. But that's sort of the, the lay of the land. So we start off here with Isaac's intent, and we see that there. Um, in verses 1 through 4, we see some circumstances, the fetching, uh, for lack of a better word, Esau, and then Isaac um, gives some very uh, specific instructions. So notice, first of all, the circumstances of this whole chapter. He says there in Genesis 27 and verse 1, Now it came about when Isaac was old and his eyes were too dim to see. The interesting thing about the Bible is when you're old, the Bible will tell you you're old. Uh, (laughs) Joshua, I reminded of this verse, Joshua 13, verse 1. It says, Now Joshua was old and advanced in years when the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years. (laughs) It's... Getting old is hard enough without God saying, you're old. So we basically believe that Isaac is, um, most of your commentaries would agree, he's about 137 years old when this happens. Now he's going to live according to Genesis 35, 28. He's going to live to about age 180. So there's still 43 years left in his life. But he kind of, he senses his own mortality. Why does he sense his own mortality? Because his body wasn't working the way it used to. It says there in chapter 27, verse 1, his eyes were too dim to see. I remember John Walver describing old age. He says, you know, nothing works anymore. The few things that do work in my body hurt. And uh, that's what was happening to Isaac. He became aware because of declining eyesight of his own mortality. And tragically, um, that's where we're all going to end up if the Lord tarries. It relates to original sin. Genesis 13, verse 19, God said immediately when Adam and Eve sinned, By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and you shall return. For you are dust, and rather to dust you shall return. Human body is going through changes. We are under the law of original sin. This is not God's original intention, but we are on a fast track towards physical deterioration. Any other warm, friendly thoughts, Pastor, from you today? Uh, But Paul, speaking of old age, says this, Therefore we do not lose heart, 
you know, so many people as they get older, they just, um, they're not what they used to be. Just go to your 40 or 50 high school year reunion to see evidence of that. All these people that thought you knew, they sure look a lot different than you remember. And you look a lot different. Paul says, therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying. In other words, you can't escape this. The inner man is being renewed day by day. Paul says, physically I'm deteriorating, but inwardly God is renewing me. And so that becomes the secret to handling old age with courage. The inner man being built up through the new nature, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the word of God is in a constant state of renewal. And one of these days God is going to give you a resurrected body that matches what's happening on the inside. And so if you don't live with these promises, you face old age without the mindset that God assigns to it. And many, many people move into a state of hopelessness. But Paul says that ought not be true for the Christian when you look at the full counsel of God's word. But at any rate, those are the circumstances. Isaac is in a state of decline, and so he says, we've got to get Esau, my firstborn son. It says, now it became old when Isaac, or it came about when Isaac was old, his eyes were too dim to see that he called his older son Esau and said to him, my son, and he, that's Esau, said to him, here I am. You'll notice the expression older son. What Isaac is going to do is he is going to bless the older son. And we believe that that was a mistake. We believe it was a mistake because God had already expressed his will in Genesis twenty-five twenty-three concerning Jacob and Esau, where it says, and the older Esau shall serve the younger Jacob. According to God and what he expressly said in chapter 25, it should have been Jacob receiving the blessing, but Esau and Isaac in his state of decline calls for his not younger son, but his older son to give him the blessing when God said it should have been the exact reverse. What is going on here with Isaac, I believe, happens to many, many people is they walk according to not the DVP, divine viewpoint, but they walk according to the HVP, human viewpoint. And Isaac um, is doing what he's doing because that's the way it normally worked in the ancient world. The blessing went to the older son and not the younger son when God specifically said, since I'm sovereign, I'm going to reverse it. So Isaac is really not walking according to the revealed will of God. He's walking according to what the world says. And by way of application, that's very easy for us to fall into that trap. Because we're living in a world system controlled by God's arch enemy, Satan. It's going to be like that until our, until Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom one day. We're living on hostile territory that has different values 
And those different values constantly exert pressure on our minds, trying to get us as Christians to conform to the way the world thinks. This is why Romans 12 verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world. The word world there is cosmos, where we get the word cosmopolitan. It's um, the system of philosophy orchestrated by Satan himself that excludes the divine viewpoint. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, which is good, acceptable, and perfect. The only way to walk according to the value system of God as a Christian, as opposed to the value system of this fallen world, is to, is to allow the renewal of your mind. And the only way your mind can be renewed is through taking in constantly God's word. God's word, I would analogize it to a, a tea bag in a cup holding hot water. The longer the tea bag stays in that water, the stronger and stronger the tea becomes. Uh, if the bag is in there just momentarily or just for a split second, you can't expect the water to be very strong in terms of drinking tea. It's sort of like that with the Bible. The amount of time you spend in the Word of God, and what I mean by that is not just staying in the Word of God, but obeying to the best of your understanding what God says. The longer that happens, the stronger your life becomes and the less likely you are to adopt a mindset that is basically worldly in nature. There are many Christians that are born again, but they have a very pagan view of origins. Um, They have a very pagan view of how a church should function. They have a very pagan view of how things are going to end. They have a very pagan view of the different issues, social issues, cultural issues that our world is facing. And the reason for that is they're they're just not in the Word. They've got all kinds of other priorities. You know, they're very, very busy, very, very productive, but they're not in the Word and under somebody as a pastor teacher teaching them the Word of God. You know, Isaac, that was basically his problem. He had God's Word. He understood what is recorded in Genesis 25, verse 23. Yet at the point of an emergency, declining eyesight, he reverted back to the human viewpoint, the way the world normally works and not the divine viewpoint. This is why the book of Colossians warns us against falling under the deception of man-made philosophies. Paul in Colossians 2 verse 8, writing to believers, says, See to it that no one takes you captive. Interesting choice of words. Prisoner. An empty deception according to the tradition of men. Isaac is following the tradition of men here. And according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. Notice that the world system, it's like kindergarten. Like ABC where in Christ are all the riches 
that can ever be found in Christ Jesus. Be careful that you don't adopt, Paul says, a worldly sort of um, philosophy. There is um, an awful lot in the scripture about worldliness. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him for all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of his eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away. And also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. John, their writing, says, why would you ever want to fall in love with the world, the cosmos, the philosophy of the day, the philosophy orchestrated by Satan himself that perpetually exerts pressure and influence on the Christian's mind? Why would you ever want to follow that? It's on its way out. It's marked for destruction. Just a matter of time before Jesus comes back and overthrows the whole thing. So if I'm walking in a worldly way, it's sort of like um, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. I'm invested in something that is not going to stand the test of time. 1 John 5, verse 19, John writes, We know that we are of God and the whole world, the cosmos, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So Satan constantly wants us to walk according to his value system and not God's, and we should not be that way as Christians. We should have our minds renewed constantly by God's word. That's the only way it can happen. So we can discern, Romans 12.2, what the acceptable will of God is. I mean, how can I know if I'm following the world or following God? Only an intake of the scripture Help us there and allow us to adjust our walk accordingly. So Esau following, excuse me, Isaac following the world has sort of summoned his older son. Isaac following the world has has summoned his older son Esau. And then we go to Isaac's instructions to Esau. You see that there in verses 2 through 4. Notice the situation. Isaac said, Behold now, I am old, and I do not know the day of my death. I'm in a state of decline. I don't know when it's my time. So I want to make some last-minute arrangements. And here's what he says to Esau, verses 3 and 4. Number one, I want you to go out and hunt. Verse 3, Now then, please take your gear, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. Now, I think when Esau here is called a hunter, that probably is not a compliment. The very first hunter that we read about in the book of Genesis is a man named Nimrod. He was building the New World Order at the Tower of Babel a one-world system of economics, politics, and religion that excludes God. In fact, Nimrod's very name means let us revolt. Nimrod is the first hunter. 
Arnold Fruchtenbaum in prior passages says verse 9 deals with Nimrod's relationship to God. He was a mighty hunter before Jehovah. The terminology implies antagonism, antagonism against and in opposition to God. Jonathan Sarfati in his Genesis commentary says, the Jerusalem Targum paraphrases the passage as follows concerning Nimrod. He was powerful in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord, for he was a hunter of the sons of men. As he said to them, depart from the judgment of the Lord and hear the judgment of Nimrod. Therefore, it is said as Nimrod, the strong one, strong in hunting and wickedness before the Lord. Nimrod was a hunter, but he was a hunter of men. Uh, Ishmael was a hunter. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says back in a prior passage, he, Ishmael, now became a hunter in the context of Genesis. This is not a positive statement, but a negative one, as already indicated with Nimrod, for he too was a mighty hunter before the Lord. So of our passage, Arnold Fruchtenbaum says Esau was a skillful hunter, just as Nimrod was a skillful hunter. In the context of Genesis, being a skillful hunter is not a positive statement, but a negative one. This is important because throughout history, Jacob has received a lot of bad press. In most sermons, especially in Christian circles, Jacob is painted negatively and attributes are ascribed to Jacob that are not true to the word of God and certainly do not correspond with God's evaluation of Jacob. There's some sin with Jacob, as we're going to see, but a lot of times it's it's overdone what Jacob does here. Esau is sort of the hero. Jacob is sort of the villain. And Fruchtenbaum says that's more of a Gentile interpretation. Um, It's important to bring balance. We see the word hunter. We live in Texas. We think Second Amendment. Hey, that's great stuff. But what's happening here, our mindset may not be exactly God's mindset. So Esau was a hunter, which probably is not a compliment, and he was given some instructions to go cook. What do you do with what you've hunted for? Isaac instructing Esau and prepare a savory dish for me as I love and bring it to me that I may eat. Interesting how Isaac, walking from the human viewpoint, was willing to give away the blessing for just a meal. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says, what did Isaac want out of this? He wanted venison. So great a blessing for so low a fee revealed Isaac's attitude. Esau sold his birthright, you'll remember, for a bowl of soup. Isaac was willing to misdirect the patriarchal blessing, which should have gone to Jacob, for one venison meal. It should be observed, however, that ancient Near Eastern texts often show consumption of food and drink in connection with the bestowal of blessing. You know, when you read about blessing for a meal, and you read the background literature of the day found in these ancient Near Eastern texts, you discover that this is a custom that is consistent with everything we know about the ancient Near East 
during the time of the patriarchs. Why bring that up? Because it's very important to understand that when you teach the Bible and you read the Bible, you're reading a historical document. You're not reading some book that has nothing to do with the culture of the times. A lot of the things that have happened in Genesis that we have studied fit exactly with what we know of the ancient Near East during the time period of the patriarchs. And I keep bringing this up because what we're being seduced to believing today is that the Bible is just a pack of fiction. I mean, it's no different than reading, you know, Veggie Tales and Jack and the Beanstalk. Real history is done by the PhDs in the school system. That's where you get your real history. You guys in church are just doing the spiritual thing. You're just doing the religious thing. And so many, many people look at the Bible that way. A good tale of morality, but it has nothing to do with what actually happened historically. And the problem with that mindset is almost everywhere you look, when the Bible talks about something that happened, it fits identically with the culture of the day. So Isaac is going to give the blessing away for a meal just as Esau gave away his birthright for a bowl of soup. It talks about how in worldly thinking we can cheapen the things of God. The book of Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 25, speaking of Moses, It says he was choosing rather to endure the treatment with the people of God, rather to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Moses, uh, if he just kept his mouth shut, could have had a great life in Egypt. But he didn't keep his mouth shut because he sensed a calling of God on his life. And he could have lived out his days in peace and prosperity. But he made a decision that I'd rather stand for the things that God cares about rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Now, make no mistake about it, sin is pleasurable. You heard it from me first. It's enjoyable, it's fun. There is always a window of pleasure, self-satisfaction in sin. But you'll notice... It's called the passing pleasures of sin. The window of pleasure passes very, very fast. And many times you're left, what's left at the end of the day is the long-term consequences that you never thought were possible when you moved off into sin. The Bible is exhorting us through these historical accounts to live for the things that matter and not be seduced by the world system, which is already on its way out. Not be seduced by the pleasures of sin, which at the end of the day are only passing. And you'll notice then what Isaac is supposed to do after Esau brings back this meal. 
It says it at the end of verse 4. So, well, all of verse 4, prepare a savory dish for me as I love. Bring it to me that I may eat so that I, so that my soul may bless you before you die. You do this and you give me this meal, I'll give to you the patriarchal blessing. What about Genesis 25, 23? The older shall serve the younger. Not not on Isaac's mind. What was on his mind was a single meal. What was on his mind was the way the world system normally works. Um, Isaac should have known better because of Genesis 25, 23. Esau had already sold the birthright to Jacob. And we know that Esau is not the elect son. And when I say elect son, the son through whom the Messiah is going to be born. Because at the end of the chapter last week, we saw that Esau married two pagan women. And if that weren't enough, he's going to marry a third woman. in Genesis 28 verse 9. I mean, keeping one wife happy is hard enough. What are you going to do with three? And we could make that go the other way, too. God has a purpose for marriage. One man for one woman for one life. It's obvious here that Esau is not honoring that. And so this is the mistake that essentially Esau is ready to make. Now, what becomes interesting is is the wife the mama of Jacob and Esau is listening. And she forms a conspiracy with Jacob to undo what is about to happen. And we see that conspiracy developing in verses 5 through 17. We have the circumstances. We have Rebecca's instructions to Jacob. We have Jacob's doubts. Is this really going to work out or not? We have Rebecca's response, and then when you get down to verses 14 through 17, the rest of it I'm going to try to cover fast, spend a little bit more time on verses 14 through 17, you have the instruments of deception. You have one of the clearest explanations in the entire Bible why people fall into a state of spiritual deception. Certainly, the unsaved world is in a state of spiritual deception, but I think the biblical explanation of deception is broader than that. The Christian himself or herself can be deceived. How do I know that? Because Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3, writing to saved people, says, let no one in any way deceive you. Now, why would Paul say, let no one in any way deceive you, writing that to a Christian, if a Christian couldn't be deceived? I mean, the devil is the father of lies. John chapter 8, verse 44. And after you've trusted in Christ for salvation, he can't take your soul to hell. But he can neutralize you. He can neutralize me. 
And he does that by filling our minds with deceptive ideas and deceptive thoughts. And so how is it that we come under spiritual deception? We need sort of an explanation on that, which we get in this chapter. So notice mom and Jacob, Rebecca and Jacob, basically form a conspiracy to undo what Isaac is about to throw away on Esau. And so we have the circumstances of the conspiracy, verse 5. Rebekah was listening while Isaac spoke to his son. Wife and mom overheard. And then Esau has now departed, and it says in verse 5, Esau went to the field to hunt for the game and to bring some home. So Esau is out doing what Isaac told him to do. Esau had left. And now Rebecca begins to give instructions to Jacob. You see the addressee of those instructions, verse 6 of Genesis chapter 27, Rebecca said to her son Jacob. And then she makes a plan for him. Parents are pretty good at planning things for their kids. (laughs) This is a plan that she says, you're going to do, Jacob, because we've got to undo what Isaac is fixing to do. Uh, Second part of verse 6 into verse 7. Behold, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, saying, bring me some game and prepare a savory dish for me that I may eat and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. The plan for Isaac, as you know, was to bless Esau, the blessing was about to fall on the wrong son. According to divine decree, it should have fallen on Jacob. And here are the specific instructions by Rebekah given to Jacob. First, you have some general instructions. Now, therefore, my son, listen to me as I command you. What is Jacob supposed to do? It's right there at the beginning of verse 9. Go now to the flock and bring me two choice young goats from there. So select two choice goats from the flock. And then what is Jacob to do? That I may prepare them as a savory dish for your father such as he loves. So select two, what's Rebecca to do? She's to cook. She's going to cook up a meal because she knows, obviously, what her husband likes, food-wise. And this is going to be a meal that he will never forget. We're going we're to put him in a good mood, in other words. We're going to put his feet up on the recliner. We're going to put the TV remote control in his hand. And we're going to put that big bowl of popcorn right in front of him. See, I'm revealing right now my weaknesses. This is the kind of things my wife will do for me when she wants me to do something for her. (laughs) And so this is the kind of thing that's happening here. And they're getting ready to set up um, Isaac. And then... 
you drop down to verse 10, and he's supposed to bring the food to Isaac, it says that you will bring it to your father that he may eat. As it's been said before, a way to a man's heart is through his stomach. and That's a little bit more literal than I care to admit. And what's the purpose here? The purpose of this deception is in verse 5, so that he may bless you before his death. In other words, he's going to think that you're Esau, but you're not Esau, you're Jacob, and you're going to steal the divine blessing. So Jacob received the blessing. Now this is what's important to understand is the sin here of Jacob and Rebekah is deception. That's the sin. The sin is not Jacob getting the blessing. Because God already said all the way back in Genesis 25, 23, that the blessing is to fall on Jacob rather than Esau. Arnold Fruchtenbaum explains then what Jacob was to do. You shall bring it to your father that he may eat. Verse 10b reveals the purpose that he may bless you before his death. The mother came up with that scheme. Again, the sin in this chapter is not Jacob stealing the patriarchal blessing. That rightfully did belong to Jacob. The sin lay in their deceiving their father. Here again is a lapse of faith. The sin is not deception. Excuse me, the sin is not the blessing. The sin is deception. And why do they move into deception? Why do they move forward with this conspiracy? It's very simple. They weren't willing to wait on God. I mean, if Genesis 25 verse 23 says what it means and means what it says, when it says the younger will serve the older, why didn't they just say to themselves, well, this is about to happen, but let's just wait on God to work it out. Why didn't they just wait on God? Well, the same reason you don't wait on God. The same reason I don't wait on God. Uh, We think in our minds that somehow we're going to have to help God out because poor God... What's he going to do at the end of the day? He's only God. Where would he be without me and my role as his consultant? Do you realize that God spoke and the heavens and the earth leapt into existence? And man doesn't even show up until day six? You mean God did his greatest work, an ex nihilo creation, without us there to give him advice? I mean, who exactly do we think we're dealing with here? I mean, when God says my plan is going to be executed, I mean, God doesn't need our help. And the truth of the matter is, the more we try to help God out, the more we muddy the waters. And this muddied the waters between the two brothers. That's why one of them, Jacob, has to flee to Haran. Um, This is a lesson that keeps coming up over and over again in the book of Genesis. You'll recall that Abram, then Abram and Sarah had the same issue. God had clearly spoken to them that through you, through your body, through this married couple, Abram and Sarai is going to come an innumerable race of descendants. 
But Sarah was barren. Abram and Sarah should have just said, you know, I'm not sure how you're going to pull this off, God, but you can't lie. This is what you told us. So we're going to wait on you. They didn't do that. And they decided to help God out. And they developed a conspiracy. Genesis chapter 16, where Abram would impregnate Hagar, who was a bondservant in the household. And from that unholy union came forth the Ishmaelites. And Abram stood very smugly before the Lord and said, Lord, look at what I did for you. Look at how I've helped you. And it was at that point that God rebuked Abram and said, no. This uh, descendant, this race, this Jewish nation that I'm creating is not going to come through Hagar. It's going to come through your own wife, Sarai. But Lord, she's barren. Remember the response? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I mean, if I'm the one that spoke and the heavens and the earth leapt into existence, this is like little, this is child's play here, handling this miracle. And that's how you have to live your life as a Christian, or else the more you get involved with trying to help God, the more you're going to muddy the waters. When it comes to clear promises of God, even though they seem outrageous to us, they seem like they don't make any sense, how can God do it? You just step back and say, Lord, have your way. And I'm going to do my best to stay out of your way, because the more I get in the way, the more I muddy the waters and mix things up. And because of what Abram and Hagar did here, you now have the nation of Israel, which is a little tiny red dot in the Middle East. It's about the size of New Jersey. Surrounded by people groups, many of which coming from Ishmael, who surround the nation of Israel and over and over again threaten to drive tiny Israel into the Mediterranean Sea. The whole Middle East conflict that we read about in the newspapers wouldn't exist. Had Abram and Sarai simply waited upon the Lord. So not waiting on the Lord brings forth a lot of consequences that cannot be undone. And the nice thing about it is even though many times God's people don't wait on God and introduce all kinds of temporal problems, God's will at the end of the day is still going to happen. So even if you mess something up completely and totally and royally, which I've done in my life quite a few times. God, at the end of the day, is still going to get his way (laughs) because God cannot, cannot lie. And so this becomes a tremendous lesson for all of us in terms of waiting on the Lord. A lot of problems could have been avoided here. Had uh, Isaac... And Rebecca simply entrusted the whole situation to God. So what you see there in verses 11 and 12 is now Jacob, who's part of this conspiracy, starts to have some doubts. He says that in verse 11. It says, Jacob answered his mother, Rebecca, behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man. 
I am a smooth man. In other words, we're going to try to pull off this deception, but Isaac is going to be aware of it just by touching our arms. Because there's a difference between Jacob and Esau in terms of a hairy arm versus a a smooth arm. Uh, This is interesting here, this idea of hairy, Esau meaning hairy in Hebrew. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says, however, in 27, 11, and 12, Jacob expressed some doubts about his mother's plan, with verse 11 spelling out the contrast between himself and Esau. And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man. The Hebrew word for hairy here is seir. And that is the basis of the central mountain range of Edom, known as Mount Seir. As for Jacob, he continued, I am a smooth man. This is where the Edomites came from in biblical history. In camping or living on Mount Seir in Edom. Perennial enemies of the nation of Israel. You go back to verse 12 and Jacob points out a danger. Perhaps my father will feel me then. And I will be as a deceiver in his sight. Now his eyesight is declining, but when he touches my skin, he's going to know that I'm not Esau and I'm Jacob. And it says there in verse 12, and I will bring upon myself a curse, not a blessing. Once dad figures out I'm trying to fool him, he'll call me a deceiver. And instead of blessing me like you want, mom, curse me. And Rebecca, of course, gives a response. Um, Her response there is in verse 13. And it says, but his mother said to him, your curse will be upon me, my son. I'll take the responsibility, Rebecca says. This one's on me. The curse is to be on Rebecca. And Rebecca sort of acknowledges this because she's the instigator of this uh, conspiracy. What I want you to do, Jacob, is I want you to do what I told you to do. Second part of verse 13. Only obey my voice and go get them for me. Fetch the goats. And now what we enter into, verses 14 through 17, is the instruments of deception. And this becomes very important because it becomes an explanation why people become deceived. People become deceived because they put their faith in their senses and not in the revealed will of God. Isaac, I believe, was open to greater deception because he rejected the plain revealed will of God in Genesis 25:23 that the older will serve the younger the the blessing is not to go to the older it's to instead go to the younger so let's look at this very carefully um, first of all the food is prepared verse 14 so he went and got them and brought them to his mother and his mother made savory food such as his father loved. 
And then verses 15 and 16, you have the close of deception. And this deals with smell. And it deals with feel. Notice verse 15. It says, Then Rebekah took the best of the garments of Esau, her elder son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. In other words, when Isaac touches Jacob, he is going to feel Esau. Because one man is smooth, one man is hairy. And then we have um, the deception of, first of all, smell, verse 15. And then you have the deception of feeling, verse 16. And she put the skins on the young goats, on his hands, on the smooth part of his neck. So it's interesting. Here comes Jacob, but he's going to smell like Esau, because he's got Esau's clothes on. And uh, Esau is known for being out in the wilderness hunting. And then when Isaac touches Jacob, he's going to feel like Esau because she put these sort of, you know, hairy garments, so to speak, on his arms. And so you'll notice that all of the senses are being appealed to here by way of deception. You have a deception related to smell. You have a deception related to uh, feeling. And then finally, you have the food of deception. She also gave the savory food and the bread which she made to her son Isaac. So Arnold Fruchtenbaum sort of sums up this conspiracy as follows. In preparation, she was able to cover all but one of the senses either actively or passively. As for the sense of sight, Isaac was blind. And so that was not an issue, or his eyes at least were dimming. As <clears throat> excuse me, as for the sense of smell, Jacob was wearing Esau's clothes. As for the sense of taste, the goat would taste like venison, as for the sense of touch, the goat skins would be hairy. The sense of hearing was the only problem that she could not cover, and that fact will become a problem to a point of danger. The setup for the situation is that Rebecca cooks like Esau, and Jacob smells and feels like Esau. The anatomy of deception. Deceiving someone into trusting their senses and setting aside what they know is right. Why was Isaac in this particular state, in a place of vulnerability, ready to be deceived? Because he had rejected the truth or ignored the truth, as given in Genesis 25 23. The older will serve the younger. I'm of the persuasion that if Isaac had simply acknowledged that truth and lived accordingly, this deception here would not have happened. The anatomy of deception. I think this is something we should pay attention to because this is what Jesus said about the last days. 
Matthew 24, 4 and 5, where Jesus was describing the birth pangs leading up to his return. It says, and Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. As we get closer and closer and closer to the end of the age, deception will increase. In fact, that's a chart there that I I use a lot. Because that chart there, and we don't have time, unfortunately, to look up all of those verses. I wish we did. But that chart there will show you every time in the Bible where a miracle is happening and God has nothing to do with the miracle. We're living in a culture and we're living in a society that will say something is true because of an experience. If that's the way people think, they're sitting ducks for the Antichrist. Because the Antichrist, according to that chart, will bring in incredible signs and wonders. Second Thessalonians 2 verse 9 says, That is the one who is in coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power, signs, and wonders. And do a Greek study on those terms, powers, signs, and wonders, powers, dunamis, Signs, simeon, wonders, teros, and you'll find those identical expressions and descriptives in the ministry of Jesus. In other words, the Antichrist is going to be doing miracles on par with Jesus himself. And since we're living in a culture and a society that will say, I believe something is true because I saw something. I felt something. They're sitting ducks for the deception which is just on the horizon. Many, many people think something is true because they saw a dream, had a vision. People will say, I like this church over here, but not that church over there. Why is that? Because church A makes me feel a particular way. People make decisions based on where to attend church many times, not based on what is taught or based on truth, but something related to feeling. Well, I I went ahead and I entered into this adulterous relationship. Well, why did you do that? Well, she or he made me feel a certain way. When God's word is crystal clear on the subject, you're either going to be following feelings, you're going to be following the the world system, or you're going to be following the propositional statements of God. Isaac is in a terrible mess here because he didn't follow the propositional statements of God, but was trusting in his senses and the world system. And consequently, he became a candidate for deception, the anatomy of deception. Remember the Gibeonites in the book of Joshua? Joshua 9, verses 3 through 6, When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done at Jericho and to Ai, they also acted craftily and set out envoys and took worn-out sacks on their donkeys. 
and wineskins worn out and torn and mended. Joshua was told to eradicate the people in the land. And the Gibeonites were people in the land. And the Gibeonites basically said, you know, we just came into this land. What are you wiping us out for? I mean, look at our, look at our knapsacks. Look at how worn out they are. Trust in your senses. Trust what you can see. When the knapsack and other things were in, Intentionally worn out. In other words, the knapsack was not an indicator of how long the Gibeonites had been in the land. This is how Joshua was deceived, the anatomy of deception. And worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes on themselves. And all the bread of their provision was dry and had become crumbled. They went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. You can make a covenant with us. I know God probably told you to not make a covenant with the people of the land. But we just came into the land. When the Gibeonites had been in the land the whole time, they just put on these worn out garments to make it look that they had just entered the land coming from a faraway journey. You see why Joshua was deceived here? He was told to trust his senses, what he can see, rather than the propositional statements of God, that all the people of the land are to be eradicated. And because Joshua didn't do this, he suffered tremendous consequences for it. He introduced into the land of Israel sin because eventually the tail starts to wag the dog that corrupted the whole land of Israel, leading to their expulsion from the land 800 years later. Here's where the problem started. Joshua didn't do what God told him to do concerning the Gibeonites. He substituted what seemed right to him what he could see for the oppositional statements of God. Joshua 9, 11 through 15 continues, and it says, So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions in your hand and for the journey, and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Now then make a covenant with us. This is our bread was warm when we took it for provisions out of our houses on the day we left to come to you. But now behold, it is in a dry and crumbled state. The wineskins which we filled were new and behold, they are torn. And these are our clothes and our sandals are are worn out because of the very long journey. They were set up were made to think that these people had come from a long journey and they weren't part of the Canaanites that God propositionally said destroy. The deception involved trust what you can see, not what God said. Doesn't, doesn't the Bible say there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is what? It's death. 
If you're going to spend your life as a Christian following what you can feel and following what seems right to you, rather than what God has said, then not only are you deceived and have been deceived, but the deception is going to get worse. And this is something we need to pay attention to because Jesus said, Satan is not taking a vacation. The appeal to the senses is going to increase right down to miracles that Satan himself will perform at the end of the age to deceive the masses. Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live and the leaders of their congregation swore an oath to them. He just did what God said don't do and you go through the rest of the Bible and you see the terrible consequences that were reaped because of it. Anatomy of deception. The propositional statements of God were crystal clear. Older shall serve the younger. Isaac uh, should have said right at the beginning of this chapter, I'm calling for Jacob. Receive the blessing. Yeah, but Isaac, the world system works differently. I don't care. God said what he means and means what he says. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. The whole chapter would be different if he had done that. But he didn't do that. He rejected the propositional statements of God and now is in a position as a vulnerable older person to be deceived to an even greater degree. See, you might come to Sugarland Bible Church and you might say, I just don't understand every little thing the pastor says. But here's the deal. There's some things you do understand. There's some things you do know. Are you being faithful to those things? Because if you're not faithful to those things, your mind will become opened up to greater deception down the road. See how it works? Romans 1, verses 18 through 20. Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident with them. For God has made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, so that men are without excuse. It's obvious God exists. Look around you. You don't have design without a designer. And yet, what do people do? They take what's obvious and they suppress it. I don't really want to acknowledge that God exists because he's revealed himself clearly in creation. I want to be God. So I'll take the obvious disclosure of God and I'll hold it down in unrighteousness. I'll come up with all kinds of crazy theories that the universe assembled itself over billions of years. But that's that's not even the issue. The issue is if I acknowledge God exists, then he's in charge and not me. And the natural man doesn't want that. And so they take the obvious propositional truth of God 
and they pretend like God had nothing to do with the manufacturing and the creation of this cosmos, this universe, this solar system. They suppress what they they know. And what happens to the mind? Now it's open to all kinds of deception of a greater degree. Paul continues, for even though they knew God and they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. You see how the darkening has increased? Because they rejected the obvious propositional statements of God that he exists through creation. Professing themselves to become wise, they became fools. Why are people so foolish? Why is it that the people who reject Jesus Christ will believe anything and everything other than the obvious? They'll, They'll believe in crystals. They'll believe in astrological projections. They'll believe in astronomy. They'll chart their whole destiny by the stars. But you won't bow the knee to Jesus? When you look at, uh, I don't mean to go too far out on a limb here, if I haven't already, but you look at some of these uh, wealthy Hollywood actors and actresses, and you look at the insane things that they believe in. Many of them are involved with Scientology. Just like a science fiction, as far as I can tell. Why would someone as wealthy and as talented and as smart as you believe that? Well, they rejected God at the outset, and their heart became darkened. He goes on and he says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Things which are not proper. You know what a depraved mind is? It's a mind that doesn't think correctly. It's it's a mind that cannot come to obvious conclusions from the data. And how do people get that way? They get that way because they rejected what they did know. The proposition of God in creation that I exist. You suppress the obvious, Katie, bar the door. Your mind becomes open to almost every kind of deception imaginable. This can happen to a Christian. A Christian could sit and listen to a sermon and hear the the word of God taught in clarity and the Holy Spirit could take perfectly a teaching of the Bible and apply it right to their life. Say, you know what, I'm not going to live that way live the way I want. Six months to a year pass, and not only are you involved in deception, but greater deception. Because that's what God says happens. It's, it's a dangerous thing to reject the obvious propositional statements of God. This is exactly what is happening to Isaac as he's taking his metaphorical eyes, because he's nearly blind at this stage in his life, off of the naked word of God and onto the way the world system thinks and onto what he could see with the 
can't see very well, but taste, feel, and smell. Well, Pastor, do you have anything encouraging for us today? Well, folks, not every sermon is a, yay, let's get it done for Jesus kind of sermon. Some of them are warnings. Paul, you know, went around teaching and warning. You'll find that expression used to Paul, teaching, warning, teaching, warning, teaching, warning. There's a lot of teaching that goes on in Christendom today. There's not a lot of warning. This is a, this is a warning kind of sermon. To get your own spiritual house in order. Lest something worse befall you. But the wonderful thing about it all is even though we can fall into deception as Isaac was obviously falling into here, the will of God is still going to get done. Humans can mess it up and muddy the waters, but God's will will come to pass. And here is the exact will of God, as I understand it. Jesus came into the world 2,000 years ago to pay a price we couldn't pay, to bridge a gap that we couldn't get bridge. And he commands us to trust in what he has done in our place 2,000 years ago. As I said last week, salvation is not achieved, it is received. Received as a free gift. Well, I don't want to do it that way. All right? I don't even want to know what you're going to believe six months from now if you reject that. I mean, it would scare me to know the type of deception that you'll be walking in when you won't even believe that. The most basic message that could ever be preached, the most important message that could ever be preached for a lost human being. And so our exhortation to people in the building, listening or watching online, listening or watching on archives after the fact is to trust Another word of saying believe in what Jesus did. Trust him and him alone for your eternity and the safekeeping of your soul. And that's something you can do now even as I'm speaking. If it's something you need an explanation about, I'm available after the service to talk. But for the Christian listening to this, may not understand every little thing that is communicated via this pulpit, but you understand something. Faithful to that. And if you're faithful to that, God increases the light. If you reject that, the light that you have in your mind and life decreases. You become a candidate for spiritual deception the anatomy of deception, shall we pray. Father, we're grateful for your truth, your word, although these things happened 2,000 years before Jesus ever came into our world. They're there for our instruction, our betterment, as you have given us history. You have recorded it for us as strong messages that we need as your church in the last days. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said.